Welcome to Our Story, a podcast where ordinary people share extraordinary stories. My name is Atherva, and today I'm joined by Deanna Bertini. What's up, Deanna? Hi, Atherva. I'm good. How are Doing you? Doing well. By the way, did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yes. Okay, you did. perfect. <laughs> oh, man. How is it going? Everything is good. I mean, it's a crazy time, but trying to stay sane. Okay, so uh, where are you today? And, uh, you know, like what city and uh, how are you keeping busy? Yeah, so um, I live on Long Island, which is in New York, um, in case your listeners are not local. Um, I've been keeping busy mostly by working. I'm working from home, which is a blessing, to be honest, mm-hmm. because I know how many people have been furloughed or lost their jobs. Um, so I'm trying to keep myself busy with that. Other than that, I think similar to you, I've been trying to get creative. I actually just moved into a new apartment about three weeks ago. So I've been spending my time decorating, making art for my walls, moving furniture around, things like that. Okay, awesome. And I know you're very creative in many ways. And we, we can share some stories on some of the things we've uh, we've we've made or you helped me make kind of thing. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you know, Deanna, if you had your own Wikipedia page, what would that first paragraph say for you? Oof. It would say, Deanna is a family-oriented 20-something living on Long Island with a young adult who's like a child to her and works in higher ed. Okay, so there's a lot to dissect there. You said you are a foster parent to a young adult. (laughs) I didn't use that exact lingo, but I'll take it. Um, Yeah, so... I took in a young adult. Um, She's a college student about mm, two years ago and she lives with me and I care for her. And, you know, we kind of like live this like mother daughter lifestyle as, you know, a 20 year old and a late 20 year old. Wow. That's so interesting. But I think there's a lot leading up to that. So let's roll back the years back to our Rowan days. Uh, You and I were RAs together what kind of yes. inspired you to go down that route? So, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm working in higher ed. I work in student affairs. Um, originally in college, I was an early childhood ed major, and I really wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. Um, and it's funny how life changes because clearly I am not a kindergarten teacher. Um, I just really liked working with college students, you know, um, Obviously, we were RAs together. I know you've talked about this in previous podcasts, but I guess to elaborate, that's a resident assistant. And, you know, we really enjoyed our years. I know not all of us become RAs with an aspiration to work at a college someday. Obviously, like you didn't, and you still enjoyed your time there. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a really rewarding also thankless job but it was great <laughs> yeah i mean i had a lot of, ton of fun doing it and most importantly like all the people that uh, i met and befriended was my favorite part so let's let me understand a little bit you started as an education major did you graduate with that same degree or did you change your path in college i changed my path in college i dropped education down to a minor when i got accepted into grad school Um, I really didn't want a student teach. It didn't feel worth it to me because 
I wasn't going to be a teacher. So like, why go through all of that hard work? And I really felt like I would have been robbing the kids of their experience if I had to teach them as a person who really didn't want to do that. Um, So I dropped that down to a minor. I was a double major already. So I graduated with a liberal studies degree with a minor in early childhood education. Um, And like I said, that was at a time when I had already been accepted to grad school. I knew what my next steps were. So I felt comfortable dropping that down at the time. Mm -hmm. I did it my last semester (laughs) in college, which I don't recommend changing your major as a senior in college, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. That's really cool. I mean, you already had grad school lined up. I guess where in your college career did you decide on this pivot? Because if I remember correctly, we were already together both our sophomore years. Is that correct? Yes. And then our senior year again, right? Mm Because we were in robo together. Um, Yeah. So I guess the changeover really happened. I guess I had to be a junior. You know, I was really involved in college. I mean, you know, you were too. Um, And I just liked my extracurriculars more than I liked my classes and more than I liked my time in the classroom. Um, So that was really eye opening for me. And so with, you know, the help of some really great mentors, um, like you would remember Ashley Shaw. Mm -hmm. She was our residential uh, learning coordinator of our whole freshman area. And she was really, you know, instrumental in me changing careers. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, one day it just kind of went off like a light bulb. You know, I love kids, but that doesn't mean I want to make them the, you know, focal point of my entire career. Got it. Very cool. See, I didn't, I didn't know that. And then, okay, so now we have graduated from Rowan and there's tons of stories that we may touch upon later. Uh, And then you went to grad school at Salisbury, if I remember correctly. Yes, which is in Maryland. Okay. Uh, And what did you uh, study there? So I studied conflict resolution. So um, it was actually surprisingly a very popular master's program for people who were interested in higher ed. Salisbury did have a master's in education program, but I think it reflected too closely to the education I got at Rowan. So I wanted to pick something different to try to diversify my experiences. Um, So I chose conflict resolution. It was really interesting. I still got to do all of my work in higher ed, but our focus was more about negotiation, mediations, um, and other like tools for you know, managing conflict. Um, I mean, it was cool. I got to learn how to be a really good facilitator. Um, it enhanced, I think, my public speaking skills. And um, recently, actually, I just went back and, I mean, not physically, I zoomed into a class to talk about what I'm doing now to, you know, first year students in that cohort. So it's pretty cool. Oh, very cool. So after grad school, what what kind of profession did you enter, like, uh, right after master's? So I decided to stay in residence life. Um, that was what I did throughout grad school. Obviously, that was kind of my main focus in undergrad. Um, and really because I guess like every day is different when you work in residence life. I mean, you could go from, you know, decorating a bulletin board to, you know, managing a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. And so it always kept you on your toes. And it was always interesting, but most importantly, it paid the bills. 
Um, so after grad school, I was a professional resident director. I also worked as a Title IX coordinator. So in that role, I was um, investigating incidents of sexual assault and gender-based misconduct that happened um, on our college campus. Got it. Um, and but for I, the folks that are not familiar, what is Title IX and what is the premise on that? Yeah, so Title IX is a, it's a law, basically, um, that colleges have to abide by that is basically like the governing, um, you know, law over gender-based misconduct. So, mm-hmm. you know, it allows for fair practices um, among sexual orientation, um, race, ethnicity, and then also, like I said, when you trickle it down, um, also talks about um, sexual assault, rape, you know, that kind of misconduct. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of prevention education. I was doing a lot of investigations while also serving in my role as a resident director. So I was the only live-in professional um, at the college that I worked at. So I was on call 24-7 because of both of those roles. Um, And I'm no longer doing that (laughs) because that's kind of a stressful way to live. Um, I did leave that job a year ago. Um, and now I'm working in student engagement. So I'm more in the leadership sector. Okay. So talk to me more about your current role. Where are you? Like, where in New York? So it's on Long Island um, in Old Westbury. I work at the New York Institute of Technology. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm working in student engagement. So a lot of that is leadership. A lot of that is major event planning. A lot of that is overseeing clubs and organizations. Um, so I do all of that. It's really great. I love my coworkers. I love my job. My students are awesome. Um, and I really like the institution I'm working for now. I didn't have quite as good an experience at my last institution. Um, but, you know, I think everything happens for a reason. I did, you know, land myself, I think, the opportunity to impact a lot of people in my last job. So I did like that. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Okay, very cool. So just to recap, uh, you went in with the initial thought of, I want to become a kindergarten teacher that really evolved into uh, res life. And, you know, you really liked uh, impacting college level students. And with the mentors and influences you had in your time at college, you decided to pursue that path at grad school. Once grad school was done, you're continuing your career uh, to your current role in student engagement. Does that yes. sum everything? Okay, very cool. That sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> so throughout all that, walk me through how you also became uh, a guardian. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting story. And I will also say just for the record that, you know, a part of the story includes, you know, some information about mental health, including like suicide. And so for listeners who are like sensitive or have triggers, you know, whether or not they want to continue to hear it (laughs) is up to them. Um, It's a happy ending, I think. I mean, it's not really over, but it's a happy ending. Um, Yeah. Thanks for the heads up. And uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, I think knowing you, uh, the way you articulate things, uh, one, I think it's very informational, but I do encourage folks to learn if they're not familiar, but you know, I uh, also respect, uh, you know, if you're uh, not ready to hear it, uh, please, uh, uh, you know, pause or uh, go on to the next one. 
yeah, nothing super serious. Everybody's still alive. I'll lead off with that. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, <laughs> but basically, so the way I became a, you know, what I like to call um, early onset parenthood. So <laughs> that's what my friends and I joke. We call it uh, early onset parenthood. Um, it was when I was working at my last institution, Residence Life. Um, I'll remember it like clear as day. You know, as you do when you're on call at an institution for emergencies, like you do kind of just go throughout your normal day and just hope that nothing goes wrong. Um, But that was not the case for me on this day. And I was in a restaurant with a couple of friends and I got a call from one of my RAs. And for them to be calling me at six o'clock was a little abnormal because it was typically before their shift began. So immediately I knew something was not right. And I picked up the phone, took it to the bathroom and, you know, kind of talked with my RA about, you know, what's going on. Um, And she advised me that, you know, there was a resident in my building, a young woman, and she had attempted to overdose um, in their apartment um, and that the RA was calling me to figure out, like, what should they do? Um, You know, and of course, the emergency responder and me you know, immediately advise them, like, you need to take this person to the hospital, like, you need to hang up, you need to call 911, like, you need to kind of go through all of that, get the medical attention, and then call me back, you know, when they're kind of, like, secured. Um, and so, you know, if they're a different from what we experienced as RAs, my RAs took students to the hospital. Um, when we were RAs, we would just put students in an ambulance and be like, all right, feel better. Um, this is not the case because I lived in Manhattan. This is very common practice that the RAs will accompany the student to the hospital. And so that's what my RA did. We knew based on, you know, things that we found in that student's room that it was, you know, an attempted suicide and that, um, you know, and that based on the prior knowledge that we had, you know, we knew that this was not the first attempt that the student has made in their lifetime it was pretty safe to assume that this wasn't an accidental, you know, overdose. Um, And it was really challenging. You know, as an institution, you want to balance protecting the student and their well-being with also protecting the school's own liability in the situation. Um, You know, when we were RAs, that was never a thing that that crossed my mind until I became an administrator. Um, And it's so terrible to think that you could be sued over something like this. Um, but somebody once Wait, told let me... Wait, <laughs> let me understand this. You could get sued for trying to help, is what you're saying? Well, depending on how you help. Yeah, parents could sue a school um, for not intervening earlier, for the way we handle it. Um, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a very careful situation when you're dealing with it. You have to deal with it properly. And like I said, you want to help the student, but you also have to keep the law on your brain. Um, So it's always a challenging thing to kind of like navigate through that in this particular circumstance. And the reason I preface that is because I actually didn't 100% follow our policies. And sometimes that, you know, is something that administrators have to do when they're balancing, like, I want to help the student without ruining their life. And I also want to make sure that the school stays clear of liability. One of the things that I did was called the girl's mom. Um, right away to let them know. And you know as well as I do that FERPA is a law that colleges always have to deal with that. It's a the federal rights privacy 
Act, something like that. Um, I don't remember the exact <laughs> acronym. Um, but the first thing that I did was call the girl's mom. And the response that I got was kind of appalling. Um, I called her mom and she told me like, you know, in so many words that she didn't care really. Um, and it was never something that I've dealt with. I've dealt with a lot of parents in my life. And I mean, you know, you and I, we're not parents, but if I got a call that my kid was in, you know, serious risk of harming themselves or did like I'd get on the first plane to New York. Um, this was not the case. So that kind of will lead me into like the next few chapters. And I, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail because mm-hmm. that could take a year <laughs> to explain. Um, but essentially, you know, the school advised that the student could no longer attend the institution because they were a risk to have at the school because they were unstable emotionally, mentally, etc. cetera. Um, risk to the school or risk to themselves? Well, the student was a risk to the school in terms of liability. Um, you know, being that the student was in attendance that they did try to overdose in a, like basically on our property that could mm. leave the institution open to liability and to all kinds of risk. If we allow the student to come back, if they attempt again, or let's say they succeeded on our property, the parents could sue us for, you know, um, negligence or like a whole slew of things. So, you know, like I said, I'm not a legal person. Like I'm a humanitarian, like I care about the person. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard when you're, you know, an entry level professional and you have to navigate a situation to try to care for a person that's so in dire need of help. But you also have to mm-hmm. be, you know, a corporate, legal, like articulate, not oversharing type of administrator. Super tough. Um <clears throat> So the challenge here was not so much that uh, you didn't want to help. It was just you were limited on the amount of help you could give because of the balance between abiding by the school and policies versus, you know, providing the help to this individual that really needed it. Absolutely. So. Okay. So how did you find that balance? Well, truthfully, we didn't. Um, You know, we contacted the student's mom and let her know that, you know, she needed to go home. We were going to send her home because she wasn't emotionally stable enough to be at the school. Um, And her mom basically said like, no, she's not coming home. Like she doesn't live here anymore. She's 19 years old and she can't come back. There's nowhere for her to come back. Um, Oh, so the parents just disowned this individual. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, Okay. And so by the student's fifth day in the hospital, um, we had to advise her doctors that she wasn't welcome to return to campus and her parents said she couldn't come home. So essentially if they discharged her, she had nowhere to go. Um, And my supervisor wanted me to pack up her belongings and bring them to the hospital. So what the hospital did was that they gave her some pamphlets about homeless shelters in the area. I mean, you're talking about a 19 year old girl. Um, So, you know, like I said, it was a super complicated situation and you know, the school among administrators had some internal battles about what to do with the student. You know, none of us wanted to see them be homeless. Our attorneys were advising us that she's too much of a liability. She's got to go. And so in order to mitigate the risk, 
the institution decided that she would have to move in with me, who, like I said, it was an administrator, a full-time professional um, who had an apartment on campus. Wait, so the mandate that the school decided was to pair this individual with you, like without your, or did you want to do this? No, I did not want to do this. Um, I mean, you know, you have experience in residence life. You probably know how absurd this all sounds, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's abnormal on any college campus to ask a student to move in with an administrator in order to, yeah, that's the part to continue. That, yeah, a little confused <laughs> on, but <yeah>, explain. <laughs> no, I mean, that, there's, that's it. There's nothing more to explain. That's what the institution decided oh, they, they would just do. Said, like, it's happening and you're like, okay? Uh, I mean, yeah, okay wasn't exactly the phrase that I used. Um, I had some choice words for my supervisor, but <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, kind of negotiated between whether or not I wanted to continue my job um, and <laughs> take the student in or get fired and the student could be homeless, you know? So after weighing out my options, I decided to let her move in with me. Um, it was super stressful. I didn't enjoy it. There was a 72 hour um, period of time after she got discharged that she and I couldn't kind of be without each other according to the institution. I had to watch her 24-7 for 72 hours. And after that period of time, they would determine whether or not she was ready to get acclimated into the dorm, you know, back into dorm life. Um, so she was with me for that amount of time. And during that time, we basically stared at each other for, you know, three days. And, you know, anytime she wanted to leave, I had to go with her. Anytime I needed to leave, she had to come with me. And, you know, being that she was a student that I knew but didn't know that well, it was a little awkward, obviously. I mean, she slept on my couch. <laughs> you know, I didn't even have a two-bedroom apartment that was furnished. She had to sleep on my couch. Um, she wasn't allowed to have the door closed. I had to get rid of my knives and any other materials in my apartment that could have been a risk to her. The situation was out of hand, <laughs> I think, at that point is a safe way to put it. Um, but after the 72 Yeah, hours, I don't even know how to react to this. But yeah, continue. Yeah, I mean, I will say that that experience is what started my job search to go somewhere else. Um, because it's really unprecedented. I, I'm not a lawyer, but if any other higher ed professionals are listening, I would not recommend that as an outcome for a student who's at risk. Um, I didn't personally want the liability of it either. You know, um, as an administrator, she was left in my care. What if something happened to her over the three days that she was, you know, under my 72-hour watch? Um, I mean, you, you know, like, you go through a million scenarios in your head as it's happening. Like, what if this kid runs away? What if they do something in my apartment? Like, you don't know how at risk that person is. I mean, yes, they were, mm -hmm. they were deemed okay enough to discharge. But, like, when you're talking about chronic depression anxiety and suicide ideation like you never know when that burst is going to come back over the person and so got it so how recent was this and how did that relationship evolve with the two of you yeah so <clears throat> it was two years ago um basically she after that 72 hour period of time where she lived with me she sort of never left 
Um, so that's kind of like the mile marker <laughs> where I begin this like timeline of her living with me because, you know, she did obviously um, bond with me. And as a person who like is estranged from her parents and like, you know, her parents are, were teenagers when they had her and she doesn't really feel any kind of like bond with a person who is like a maternal figure to her. Um, obviously she took to me super quickly and like, you know, me Atherva, like I'm always the mom of the group. So of course I took to her really quick too. Um, Mm -hmm. and so a couple of months after that happened, she decided to withdraw from the college because, you know, the amount of bullying and criticism that she experienced on a day-to-day basis from being a person who tried to commit suicide, um, it was just like, I think, too overwhelming for her by her peers. So Wait, wait, wait. You said there was bullying because she tried to commit suicide? Unfortunately, yes. Um, by her peers, by teachers, by administrators. I mean, when I tell you, I did not name the college that I worked at. And that's very intentional. I don't want to throw mm-hmm. them under the bus, but like... Yeah, and that's not my intention. Yeah. The reason I ask it, usually you think about bullying is the reason why someone could be pushed to, uh, you know, such extreme ends. Uh, but this one was like unique in the sense, at least in, in my perspective, she faced bullying after the fact. And that's the part I, I can't comprehend. I know. Me neither. And honestly, I've just, I've never worked in a more toxic environment in my whole life, Atharva. Like, Everything that I'm saying sounds unimaginable, but every piece of it is true. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I- I've never worked in a more toxic environment where administrators, professors, students, like, were just completely cutthroat and really were not empathetic to people's situation at all. With the exception, okay. I will say, of my sex RAs who saved her life. And I do want to give a shout out to one of my RAs, whose name is Cheyenne, um, because she did save her life and was so young when she did it. And, you know, my six RAs, I would say, were some of the most empathetic students that you could find on campus. Um, Other than that, yeah, um, I did not meet many individuals that I would want to continue to have relationships with after I left. I think because of that experience. Gotcha. That's that's so unfortunate to hear, but you know, there's always there's, it reminds me of a Mr. Rogers quote. Uh, I'm not gonna get the, I'm gonna get the wording <laughs> wrong, but it, it always says, "Look for the helpers in any situation because there's always going to be more helpers." And you know, people like Cheyenne that came through uh, are always going to be there. So, thanks. Uh, you know, shout out to Cheyenne and uh, your six RAs. Yeah, no, I mean, they were great about the whole thing um, and really helpful, even in the months that followed, you know, that incident. Um, Uh, But uh really, you know, the the next steps were, you know, a little bit happier, I guess. Um, You know, eventually, like I said, she decided to withdraw from the school. I helped her apply to other um, programs in the area, you know, that taught theater that's what she was uh, majoring in was theater acting and film 
And I helped her apply to other colleges in the area that did accept all of her credits that she could transition into their program as a sophomore without really skipping a beat. Um, At the same time, I was applying to jobs. So like the next steps for both of us were like to get the heck out of there. Um, (laughs) And it's funny because so she got accepted to Adelphi University, which is a college on Long Island. And it was on the same day that I got offered a job to work at NYIT, which is also a college on Long Island. And so, you know, Mm. she and I kind of like looked at our offers on the table and decided that it was kind of a good time to like both cut ties with this institution that was, you know, so completely hazardous and toxic on both of our lives um, at this point. So I moved to Long Island. I let her move with me. She asked if she could. Um, So I let her move with me. And she just never left. She's still with me today. Okay, so this terrible situation blossomed into what sounds like a lifetime of friendship. Absolutely. I mean, I really, truly do love her like a child. Um, You know, I would say that, like, I care for her like a child. You know, I take her to doctor's appointments, you know, help her with therapy. Um, You know, I, I paid for a portion of her tuition last year and this year just to kind of like, you know, like help her get on her feet. You know, it's tough. Like I have really involved parents and they've always been there for me. Like anytime that I've kind of like stumbled or, um, you know, like something's not gone right in my life. Like my parents were always there to kind of like help pick me up to, you know, if I needed money, they'd help me out. If I wasn't sure what my next steps were, they'd give me advice. And I've never really known any other life. But she's known the exact opposite. You know, she just truly doesn't have anybody to help her with that stuff. Um, So I would say, like, that's the kind of role that I've taken on with her is kind of like role modeling the way that my parents have acted for me, you know, over the course of my whole life. And, you know, I'm trying to help her, like, grow, you know, as an adult because she, you know, is obviously still very young. She's 20. But she missed out on like vital things that children get to experience. So like it took her to Disney world in December, you know, for example, like I don't even think she's ever like been, you know, like on a vacation, let alone to Disney. So, um, see that, that all sounds so incredible. Like I'm I'm grinning year to year, hearing all this, like, uh, everything that motivated you to even do this, that's that's just awesome. Like, I can't phantom uh, doing anything like that. So I kind of want to ask you, where did that motivation come from? Because it sounded like you did not want to be in this situation at all. Uh, but what kind of made you care to the point that you kind of took her under the wing? I, you know, I guess I just, I don't know. I guess I just saw something in her, like, you know, she has so much potential. Like, she's so incredibly talented. She's such a good actor. Um, and she could have such a good life, you know. But she doesn't want it. She doesn't even, you know, like, at the time, she didn't even want to live. And so, like, for me to see, like, this, like, little girl, like, essentially, you know, I know she's not little, but to me, she felt little, Um with so much life ahead of her and like, she just didn't want it. And like, I get it. If I were in her shoes, I wouldn't want it either. You know, when you have nobody, like what is there to get up for in the morning, you know? Um, And like, I guess there are some people who like, 
want to fight against that and like prove everybody wrong. But like not everybody has that kind of like motivation, especially when they're suffering from a lot of mental health issues. And I knew that all of her, you know, obstacles were caused by her mental health issues. And so I felt like if I could Mm -hmm. give her a strong foundation and support and get her resources, you know, like she does go to therapy, like she is on medication, like things that can actually help stabilize her. Like she could see that there's more to life than what she's known. Um, And, you know, like I said, I've always had that. And so like, if I can, why shouldn't I, you know, like if I have the money, if I have the support, if I have the resources, like really, why shouldn't I? I I almost have no excuse not to. See, that's incredible. Many people have the means, but uh, and even may have the way, but have no intrinsic motivation to do what you did. So it's incredible. And I know for a fact that she's incredibly grateful for everything you're doing for her. And, uh, no, even thank you from my end for, for inspiring, uh, such a, I think like a, such a high potential individual to, you know, achieve what she can and giving her a sense of purpose as well. So that's awesome, Deanna. I do, I do want to add a little bit more on the part where you touched on mental health. So here's the reason I'm asking is there's always like misunderstanding on what mental health is. There's, because it's not an injury or an illness that you could see or, you know, is easily describable or even easy to relate to if you're not going through it yourself. So how can you help people understand the ones that don't have a direct connection or experience in this uh, in this type of illness? Like, how can you help translate that for, for those kind of yeah, people? Um, I mean, I guess the easiest metaphor to use would be that iceberg. Um, and it's really popular when we're talking about race, ethnicity, and identities, things like that. But like that, you know, that iceberg, um, you know, theory is about like, with an iceberg, like you really just see the top of it and anything that's un- under the water, it really like doesn't meet the eye. And so I feel like mental health is that way. You know, like somebody may be presenting totally normal, like they have their life together, completely happy, but on the inside, you know, there could be a lot of other things going on. And so, you know, I would say to always meet people with kindness And I know that you are also one of those people who is like big on like the kindness campaign. Like if you can be kind, you should be kind. Um, Truly, you never know. I never thought of it that way, but thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like I even remember back in college, like one of those quotes you always used to say, like a stranger is just like a friend you haven't met yet. Like things like that. You know, like, it's very true. You never know what's going on in somebody's life, um, really, until you actually get to, like, connect with them, and then you get to really see them. And so for people that you don't get to do those things with, like, you have to remember something. I'm going to actually whip out something totally strange. Um, (laughs) Are you familiar with, I think it's called, like, the Dictionary of... Oh man, I can't remember. It's basically, it's an online dictionary where they create a word for like a grouping of feelings that you may experience that there's like not a word for. (laughs) Does that make sense? So, okay. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, You're with me so far. So far, so so good. There's a made up (laughs) word. It's called Sonder. So that's 
S-O-N-D-E-R. The word sonder, like I said, completely made up. The definition Mm -hmm. of that word is that, you know, that you as a person can acknowledge that every passerby has a life that is as equally complex as yours. Um, So like what you see when you're walking past somebody on the street is not everything that they are. But being able to understand that their life is full of complexities, challenges, you know, um, like great memories, like families, um, I think is important because it helps you like really see people without always seeing them. Does that make sense? <laughs> Interesting. It does. It's, it's kind of like that saying that says, be kind to everyone because you never know what battles or exactly. demons they're facing. Um, that was a really long rationale. And I would love to be able to tell you like what dictionary that's, oh, it's from the dictionary of obscure sorrows. Okay. So I wanted to look it up and make sure that I was actually able to name that. Um, it's a really interesting thing, but yes, Sonder is one of my favorite made up words because like I said, it allows you the opportunity to pass by strangers and understand that their life is just as complicated, complex and meaningful as yours is. And so I mean, that's how I try to approach people that I meet on a day-to-day basis, Mm, um, because mm -hmm. you truly never know what's going on in somebody's head until you actually get the opportunity to really see them, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Even like, you know, for the folks that cannot relate to someone, or if you're not going through a mental illness yourself, if you have that viewpoint, at the very least, you could be empathetic to their situation. Um, You know, and as a person who's I never experienced, you know, a mental illness like that. It's definitely tough to wrap your head around. You know, I'm a person who feels like I'm right. so in control over my mind and body. And the truth is, is that not everybody feels that privileged. And so, you know, I would say for mm-hmm. people who, you know, are feeling that way, like they don't have as much control over their mind and body as they would like that, you know, although not everything is curable, things are really manageable. Like you can manage anxiety and depression and live a normal, happy life um, with the proper resources and they're out there. You know, and I think a lot of people need to get past the stigma of asking for help. Uh, overall, you know, happy ending. Yes, there. Is that I fair would to say, say that if it can provide anybody hope, <laughs> that would be the goal um, because there is hope. I mean, this is a person who's suffered a lot of trauma in their life and is like completely on the road to recovery and leading a happy, healthy, normal life. And so it is possible. Awesome. That is so awesome to hear. And then last piece of, uh, you know, the question I end with here is if there was one piece of advice for me, what would that be or the listeners? Um, I mean, I don't know how applicable this piece of advice is to you, Atherva, because obviously we've known each other for like, what, I don't know, seven, eight years? Yeah, we don't need to date ourselves. (laughs) um, I would say like a piece of advice for listeners is just to like know that like nobody is really alone. Um, You know, like every person brings a unique set of skills to this earth and like everybody is put here and meant to be here. So for people that are feeling alone, like know that like you're unique and you matter. Love it. Love it. And it's so true. Uh, And I know for folks that 
may not always see it that way. You you know for a fact that there are two people that definitely care, Deanna <laughs> right. and myself. And for those of you who are doing well, <laughs> pay it forward. <laughs> There's a quote by Bill Nye that says, Everyone you'll ever meet knows something you don't. And today what I learned from Deanna is actually best captured by a story that we had learned together back uh, from our college days. It was sent to us by our old boss, Nettie. If Nettie's listening, hi, Nettie. So the story goes like this. There were two boys walking on the beach. One guy was throwing starfish into the ocean. He explained, the tide has washed them up onto the beach and they can't return to the sea by themselves. When the sun gets high, they will die unless I throw them back into the water. The other boy replied, but there must be tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. I'm afraid you won't really be able to make make much of a difference. The other boy bent down, picked up yet another starfish, and threw it as far as he could into the ocean. Then he turned around and said, it made a difference to that one. So thanks to people like Deanna in making a difference. <laughs>